Well, this morning, <clears throat> I'm going to attempt to take something that's very, very difficult to understand, to communicate, and attempt to make it real simple and palatable, if that's okay. Palatable in the sense of understanding it, but not watering down the truth of it. I wanted to talk to you about salvation on God's terms. Salvation on God's terms. And I think that this is so important because in this day and age, people tend to come to God on their terms. People tend to hold God to what they believe God ought to do. They define, and we talked about this a lot, they will define the term good. From their perspective, they will say, well, I think what is good, let's say for instance, is that two people who love one another should be able to marry. That's what I think is good, and God, you better bless that now because that's love, right? So what we do is we, we, we become assuming, and we elevate ourselves above God, and we tell God what's right and wrong, good and evil. We tell God whom He's supposed to have mercy on, whom He's supposed to be gracious towards. We tell God who how he ought to save, and when he ought to save. So many people, throughout the Old Testament, however, we see as we read through, we're currently reading as a church through the Old Testament, and we see that throughout the Old Testament, people oftentimes make missteps. And these days, we don't call sin, sin anymore. We now call it a mistake, right? We call it a weakness. We call it, no, we didn't lie, I misspoke. You know, there's no sin anymore. Thank you, Joel. No sin. Just love, <laughs> right? As are many people. However, throughout the Old Testament, when they misspoke or made, took a misstep or made a w mistake or had a little weakness, it actually cost them their lives. You'll see that God actually killed them on the spot. Now, for those of you reading through the Old Testament with us, the common sense amongst people is this question. And this is the question they usually have. Is, it a, is a seemingly small disobedience, mistake, mis, misspeaking, is a seemingly small disobedience to God a severe enough offense to warrant execution? So when interpreting the Old Testament, we have, a, uh, we have to remember what Jesus says, all right? So we have to start, before you open up the Old Testament and you start reading through it, which we're currently doing, you have to start with this verse right here, where Jesus said in John 5, 46, He says, If you believed Moses, who wrote, who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament? Moses, right? If you believe that, if you believe Genesis, Exodus, if you believe Leviticus, Numbers, if you believe that, you would believe me too. If you say that you're a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you'll believe me too. Then he says this, for Moses wrote of me. What you see written in the Old Testament is in fact about Jesus. Really? The book of Leviticus is about Jesus? The book of Exodus is about Jesus? How about Genesis? Are you kidding me? How is that about Jesus? 
Well, he said it. He said it. So we're going to look this morning at the reason why God dealt with Adam and Eve in such a severe way after taking only a bite from a wrong fruit, from the wrong tree, God severely dealt with them. We're going to see why, or the reasons why God killed Aaron's two sons for offering the wrong offering on the altar. We're going to see why God killed Uzzah for attempting to rescue the ark from falling over. We're going to see why God had people stone a man to death after they caught him picking up, picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, let me just quickly tell you why we're doing this. A couple of reasons. Number one, <clears throat> we want to understand God better. Number two, we are all reading through the Old Testament together. And you're running into walls going like, well, how's God good? How is God good if he does this? Plus, there's a big conversation in the church today on the Sabbath. And so we want to incrementally, we want to climb into the conversation, but on the shallow end. <laughs> Is that okay? We got we to gotta build from the bottom up. Because how many of you are kind of like wondering, am I guilty? These Sabbatarians telling me, come out of, come out of Babylon. Stop meeting on a Sunday. Come out of Babylon. You're supposed to. And I'm like, am I guilty of this? And we're going to look at that. Really, starting today, but more so next week. So let's first go to, number one, God deals with Adam and Eve in a very severe way. Don't you think? Everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve. God made them, <clears throat> put them, well, made Adam, put him in the garden. From Adam, he took Adam's rib, and he makes Eve because he realized it was not good for man to be alone. He wasn't able to procreate because the actual command was to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then subdue it. But he needed somebody. God gave him Eve. And then he said to them, you can eat anything you want. You can do anything you want. But you see this tree right here of the knowledge of good and evil? <clears throat> Don't touch it. There's the tree of life. You're good. But don't touch this one. That's kind of like how we run our household. It's like, this is your house. Enjoy yourself. Now, you see this bed right here? Don't jump on it. <laughs> okay. There was one thing they couldn't do. And then the snake comes. And the snake deceives Eve. How? By using God's word. This is how most people are deceived these days. How? By somebody coming with a scripture. But they don't, they don't read the scripture the way the author intended that scripture to be read. No, they come and they put their spin on that scripture and make it say something else. Now, we have a lot of this in politics and the news. You see them taking a sound bite from some politician that said something. <clears throat> they put their spin on it, and it makes, makes the guy look. Uh, then you look at that guy from a very, very different perspective. This is exactly what Satan did. He came, and he took the word of God, and he came and deceived Eve. He said to Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? 
Guess why? Guess what was his intent for telling you that? He doesn't want you to be as he is. Actually, the reason God told you to not take a bite from that tree is because he's withholding from you your rights to be like him, equal. And so, Eve actually bought into, trusted, believed what he said compared to what God said, convinced Adam to do the same, and the moment Adam participated in what God told him not to do, the moment the man did that, both the man and the woman fell, and so did humanity after them. But what did God do? He threw them out of the garden forever. He, ab he abandoned, he threw them out, put an angel at the entrance, cannot come in. Why not? Because God wouldn't let them come close to that tree of life in case they took from it and lived forever. But no, they were going to die because they disobeyed God. So the question is, was it really necessary to throw them out of the garden for simply biting into a fruit God told them not to eat from? I mean, come on now. That was one little misstep. That was a mistake. It was a weakness. We all have them, right? The punishment simply doesn't seem to fit that crime. Cast out forever? After all, God is love, and the Scripture says that He's patient and He's kind. Why did He judge them so severely? Well, one starting point is in answering this is to point out that Adam and Eve's sin was not singular. It wasn't one thing they did that was wrong. But everything we do wrong has many things that go wrong because of this one misstep, this one problem. You see, Eve didn't believe God. Consequently, both Adam and Eve didn't believe God's motive was pure. Eve and consequently Adam believed God was withholding something from them. So they started questioning God's motive for why God told them to, do what, to not do what they shouldn't do. What does this mean? This means the moment you question somebody's motive, you have judged them. Now, there's a difference between judging somebody and being judgmental of somebody. You judge a person's actions, their decisions, where they go, what they do with their hands. You judge what you can see happen. For instance, if somebody steals something out of the store and you see them steal it, are you judgmental when you say, hey, stop stealing? What does, he, does he have the right to say, hey, stop judging me? <laughs> yeah. It's like you see somebody shoot somebody else. You go, hey, stop shooting people. Hey, who made you judge? <laughs> you, see, you are supposed to righteously judge how? By judging according to the word of God that which you see people do. But what you are not allowed to do, what God didn't give you permission to do, is to judge somebody's heart, somebody's motive, their intention. That is being judgmental. Only God knows man's hearts. I love it when somebody says, yeah, well, you know what? God knows my heart. I know, that's the problem. <laughs> he knows our hearts. <laughs> so here, Adam and Eve judged God's motive. They became judgmental over God. 
well, you don't want us to be just like you. That's what you're doing. You want to withhold from us. So, he elevated himself as judge over God, something this world does all the time. Not only did they not believe God, but the strange thing is they actually believed a snake. Would you believe a snake? Somehow they did. And guess what? Adam is your representative. <laughs> He's your federal head. The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, if you were in the garden and you were in his shoes, which I don't know if he had any, but if you were in his shoes, I know he didn't have a belly button, but if you were in his shoes, guess what? You would have done exactly that same thing. Why? Because he didn't misrepresent you 6,000 years ago. He accurately represented you 6,000 years ago. Yes. That's why we are part of the fallen race. They believed the snake instead of God. That's a sin. They, they elevated themselves above God and judged Him. That's a sin. Th that led to them doing what they shouldn't do, which is disobeying God's command. Adam evidently did not believe God's promise. He didn't believe that they would die. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. So again, he didn't believe God. But instead, desiring to be equal with God... They showed their own what? Pride. This is the same thing that happened to Lucifer. Equality. <laughs> Equality. Hmm. And so desiring to be equal with God, what did they show? Their own pride. They showed their own personal ambition. I want to be great. They showed self-admiration. Why, why shouldn't I be at the why shouldn't I be equal to him? Me, I, myself. Most of all, by elevating themselves as judge of a God, Adam and Eve in that way trivialized who God was. His righteousness was trivialized. His holiness was trivialized. His sovereignty was questioned and trivialized, thinking that Adam could be as God is. So I just, by the way, I'm just always amazed at how some woman would buy into the idea that a man can be a woman. Can anybody just be a woman? Is it that easy? <laughs> that, like, takes nothing to be a woman these days. Didn't, did they ever realize that what they did was they trivialized who they were really, in fact, when they said, hey, you too can be a woman. That ugly guy over there, he can be one of us. <laughs> takes nothing, man. It's easy. Slap on the lipstick and you're a woman. Come on now. Don't allow people to to trivialize you like that. But that's what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve elevated them, themselves, thinking that they can judge God. And when they did so, they trivialized who he really was, even though they knew who he was. I have a short video for you that you will love. R.C. Sproul, thank you. So severe and long 
is so severe. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that thought, it said, the day that you shall eat it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one that seduced him, whose head was Conclusion. With Adam and Eve, God established His own holiness. How different He is from man. How morally pure He is. And to question Him, to question His holiness. With Adam and Eve, not only did He establish His holiness, but He also established His justice. You see, in this, in this example here of God... God's treatment and judgment of Adam and Eve, uh, we see that God teaches us every sin is in fact a violation against His perfect holiness. When I sin against you, I'm sinning against God. Like I said last week, yeah, even though I take, steal your $10, I'm in trouble with Him. I sin against Him, even though it's yours, it was your money, right? <clears throat> We see that God's teaching us His own justice, showing us that every single sin must be punished. Everyone. You can't think back to the sins you committed yesterday, let alone 20, 30, 50 years ago. Every sin in our lives have to be punished because God is just. We also see God teaching us that the holiness or His holiness may not be touched. His righteousness may not be violated. His wrath must be satisfied and that it cannot be satisfied by a man's own effort. Secondly, there's a story that I know many people kind of frowned at. But we see that God actually kills Aaron, the high priest's two sons, for offering strange fire before the Lord. So he was the high priest. He was the only one that's able to once a year go into the presence of God on behalf of the children of Israel to sacrifice in order for them to be, for, for, in order for them to be forgiven for that year and they can have a good year, all right? He had two sons that <clears throat> they, they were priests. Now Aaron was the high priest. And these two sons, they came and they sacrificed before the Lord an offering. 
God slaps that offering away. He didn't want it. He didn't like it. He would have none of it, and he kills them right there. I mean, if you think of that, that picture seems like, wait a minute, God. He's ruthless. He's angry. He's unreasonable. Let's read Leviticus 10, verse 1 and 2. It says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, <coughs> Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Unauthorized fire before the Lord. Or other translations call it strange fire. Strange is unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It really seems a little over the top to kill two young men, not because they wouldn't bring an offering to God. No, it's not because they wouldn't offer to God. It's because they didn't give God exactly what He wanted. They didn't bring the exact offering God required of them. God threw it away and crushed them. The Hebrew word, like I mentioned, for strange is unauthorized or foreign or profane. So it may seem like God's punishment didn't fit the crime once again, but exactly what was the crime? I mean, how is that so bad? That misspeaking or misrepresentation or little mistake that they made. You see, the two men brought to God an offering that did not accurately represent who? Christ. Every offering represent, in the Old Testament represents the New Testament Jesus who became your offering before God. Let me say that again. When they brought the offering and they put the blood on the altar, that was a type and a shadow that represented the future coming Jesus, His blood on the altar making atonement for you. Let me explain it this way. Have you ever wondered, like, okay, here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus, people pray, repent, turn to God, put their faith in Christ, who already died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He died 2,000 years ago. Today we can believe on Him and be saved. Isn't that great news? Yeah, He is the perfect Lamb of God, the sacrifice that was accepted by God on the altar for us so we can be forgiven. But the question is, let's go back like 1,000 years, 2,000 years before Jesus. Those ancient God-fearing men, how were they saved? Jesus hadn't died for them yet. Well, Abraham's a good example on how to explain this. Abraham believed God. Remember that ram that was provided in the thicket just before he killed his own son? He knew God was providing a lamb. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh doesn't mean God's going to provide for you new Nikes. No. Jehovah Jireh is God's providing for us a lamb. And Abraham put his faith in that promise of a perfect lamb, Jesus. And because he believed, it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He became righteous, believing in the future coming, the promised 
the promise, the future promise, the coming Savior. We, on the other hand, 2,000 years after Jesus, believe in the Savior that did come. We both, Abraham and you, believed in the same Jesus. Him believing in the Jesus that was going to come, we believing in the Jesus that did come. See? And I'm saying that to say this. Here are these two young men, long before Jesus, representing the priesthood, Jesus being the high priest, and putting an offering, a sacrifice, blood on the altar, that which is supposed to represent the, the coming Messiah. Yet they did the unauthorized version of it, and God killed them. You cannot misrepresent Jesus and live. Can't do it. God was painting a picture so everybody could see what was to happen. But if they misprinted that painting, if they marred that painting, if they destroyed that portrait, that type, that shadow, there would be death. Just like if anybody believes in a corrupted gospel today, they too will not live. Anybody believes in an aberrant, alien gospel, there is no life in a false Christ. There is no life in a false gospel. There just isn't. So, these two men brought to God an offering that did not accurately represent the coming Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And throughout Scripture, we see misrepresentation of Christ always results in death. An unworthy sacrifice does not save, but leads to death of the one bringing it. Coming to God with good works, guess what? Guess where that leads? Coming to God with good works for the sake of being saved by them leads to eternal death. If anyone thinks they're coming to God on their own terms, with their own offering, with their own sacrifice, with their own good deeds, I'm a good, I'm a good person, they will we wake up We at Christ Nation hell. hope you found this message meaningful. Please feel it. free to share it with you anyone that you think needs to hear it. You we hope you can join us soon for a Sunday experience. For more information, please visit www.christnation.tv. Thank you, and God bless you. Cannot come to God on your own terms and live. Aaron's sons did just that. Nadab and Abihu, Abihu offered what was misrepresentation of the coming Messiah. They offered God an alternative to the required sacrifice. They offered God a fake portrait of Christ. They embodied the person who believes. These two, back then, is an example of people today who believe Christ is not the only way. There is another possible way of bringing in a sacrifice that will be sufficient for our salvation. Do, are you following what I'm saying? They, Nadab and Abihu, embody the person today who believes that there is a man-made offering that will be sufficient for God. They embody the person who believes that 
what they have to offer God is in fact good enough. God should save them. And here God establishes the, what, exclusivity of Christ in salvation. Just like with Nadab and Abihu, God will not be satisfied with a strange, unauthorized alien offering. Christ alone qualifies. Nobody else qualifies. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given to man by which we might be saved. No other name. So we see how God reacts and responds and judges Adam and Eve for what we think is a small sin. But if you pull the curtain away, you go, wait a minute. There's a lot of violation of God's holiness, God's righteousness, the person of God by what they did when they took that one bite. We see Nadab and Abihu. Oh, come on. They just brought not the exact perfect offering. Well, there you go. They misrepresented Jesus. And now, number three, I'd like for us to look at how God kills Uzzah for attempting to rescue the Ark of the Covenant. Seems like a good thing. Sometimes good becomes the enemy of God. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen at one stage, believe it or not. David gets all these men, I believe it's 30,000 men, and they go and they capture and they take the ark back and bring it back to where it's supposed to be in their midst in Jerusalem. And so they, they come, they find the ark, they have tambourines and dancers and singers, and they, they're not going to bring the ark all the way back to where it's supposed to be in Jerusalem. However, David, probably because of convenience sake, decides, well, you know what? I know the ark is supposed to be carried by the Levites alone. The ark of the covenant, inside of it, was the presence of God. And the presence of God was to be carried by the priests, Levites. And they were not allowed to touch the ark. The presence of God may not be touched. So they were supposed to put these poles through the sides of the ark that had these rings. And they were supposed to lift it up, put it on their shoulders... These priests, these Levites, and they were supposed to walk with it that way, but nobody's allowed to touch it. David decides, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to take the ark, we're going to put it on a flat bed, and get a couple of oxen to pull this thing, right? And we'll just dance and celebrate and be merry. Well, as these oxen were trotting forth with this cart behind them and the ark of the covenant on top of it, one of the oxen stumbled... And as he stumbled, the ark started tipping. And this man, out of the goodness of his heart, decides to grab a hold of the ark and push it back. And the moment he reached his arm of flesh out to the ark, God strikes him dead. He would go, wait a minute. He meant well. He's a good man. But we have to see what the ark represents. The ark of the covenant is in fact the prophetic picture of Jesus. See, in Exodus we see two angels, one on, the, one on either end of the mercy seat above the ark. So you have the ark of the covenant. On top of it you have an angel and another angel, right? Now guess what? In the empty tomb where Jesus lay, also we hear that there were two angels. 
on either side. When sacrifices were made in the Old Testament, the priest would come to the ark and would sprinkle blood between these two angels right there on the mercy seat. The blood of that animal was dropped on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant where the presence of God was. And that is what God looked at in order to make atonement, or not atonement, but to forgive them for their sins, to cover their sins. But guess what? In Jesus' tomb, there were two angels on either side where he lay, bloodied. Your sacrifice. This is God's mercy toward you, the mercy seat of God. What else is interesting about the Ark of the Covenant is that manna was found inside of the Ark of the Covenant. When you open it up, underneath the mercy seat, there were some items there. One being manna that fell from heaven. The bread that fell from heaven and satisfied their hunger. In the same way, we find that Jesus is in fact the bread of life that heaven gave us. John 6, 32 and 33. We also see inside of the Ark... Aaron, the high priest's staff, was in there, and without it having any root system in the ground, it was just laying in the ark. It was budding all year round. Aaron's staff, Hebrews 9, 4. But we also see in Hebrews 4, 14 that when Christ rose from the dead, he became what to you? Your high priest. As Aaron was the high priest in Israel, his rod representing his position, the high priestly position uh, for Israel, was in the ark. So, Jesus now becomes your high priest. What does a high priest do? He stands between you, the sinner, and God. God, the holy God's wrath against your sin. He intercedes for you. Here comes God's wrath against your sin. Christ intercedes and he swallows up God's wrath against you he intervenes he intercedes and so as Aaron's rod was in that ark of the covenant representing the high priestly position so Jesus becomes your high priest and my high priest finally we see that in the ark of the covenant the stone tablets of the law were in the ark of the covenant the stone tablets it's a little too cold if you don't mind just making it not thank you Tina the stone tablets of the law were in the Ark of the Covenant. Those rocks that God wrote on with His finger, Moses brought down. Those were in there. But we see in Matthew 5, 7, 17 and 20 that Jesus, in Jesus, God's law was fulfilled. That law that was in the Ark of the Covenant is now living So really, when, when Azza put his strength, when Azza lift lifted up his hand to stop the ark from falling over, he was in fact coming to the ark's rescue. That's a picture of somebody attempting to help Christ save them.
You see, Jesus only saves those who do not try to help Him save Him, save them. If you, you, you see, you bring nothing to the table. When it comes to your salvation, God does everything. Why? Because He's going to get all the glory for saving you. The only thing you bring to salvation is your sin that made your salvation necessary. That's all you bring. There's a gospel out there that's saying, well, God came to save you because you were valuable. No. That would make God not as good. Do you see how that trivializes God? Oh, He's going to come and save you because, man, you're valuable, and He, and, and he wants that value. No. Actually, <laughs> we were all together worthless, the Bible says. And He came not because you were valuable. He came because He loved not because you were valuable, because He loved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Where other people's God, for the world was so valuable that God gave His only begotten Son. No. For God loved. And Uzzah stretched out His hand and He participated in rescuing God from not being sufficient in rescuing Him. <laughs> With Uzzah, God establishes His sovereignty and salvation. With Uzzah, God's, God is saying right there, salvation belongs to me. Don't touch. Don't try and strengthen. Don't lend God a helping hand. Christ's saving power is effective only to the one who puts his faith in Christ, not the one who adds his own strength to Christ. Man cannot save God. God saves man all by himself. Man cannot help God save him. God will not share his glory with any man. All glory goes to God for saving those who have faith in Christ, period. All glory goes to God for saving those who have faith in him. You see, the sin of Uzzah is actually a sin many commit today, if you think about it. Um, there are more examples, but I want to give you two. First and foremost, in an attempt to be right with God, people attempt to add their own good works. They add their own good works to Christ's perfect work on the cross. Jesus did a lot for me on the cross, and plus I'm a good person. Yeah, it's got to work. I remember coming out of, out of uh, I wasn't drinking Starbucks at the time. We were too poor. <laughs> No, uh, uh, we were living down in Tinley Park, and I remember we used to go to that Dunkin' Donuts where Sonny worked. And there was always, whenever I came out of the Dunkin' Donuts, the guy, one of the people that worked there had a BMW parked right on the front there, but they had a, they had a crucifix hanging from their rearview mirror, and right below the crucifix on the dashboard was a little Buddha. I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I'm covering all my bases. <laughs> I'm doing everything I can. That's not how the gospel works. Christianity is the only religion in the whole world that does not require men to participate in their salvation. Secondly, this example we have in Uzzah is people attempt to make God look better. Have you ever noticed that? People attempt to make God look better. They try to make Him look more stable. I'm going to use that term in regards to the ark tipping over. <laughs> 
People trying to make God look more stable than uh, what these accounts seem to portray God. Like people hide the fact that God treated Adam and Eve the way he did. For something as trivial as it may seem. They, they're trying to hide the fact that God, there was another reason. I mean, really, it must be a big reason. You know, Nadab and Abihu did, did something much worse than just bringing not the right offering. And here we have God killing Uzzah just for touching the ark. He was trying to do a right thing and God kills him. And what happens is people see um, or you see people who wanting to revise God's word and twist his scriptures attempting to save him from appearing inhumane towards Noah or seeming to be savage towards Sodom and Gomorrah for burning them or seeming cruel towards poor Job or seeming merciless towards unbelievers' ultimate outcome, which is judgment in hell forever. I mean, whew, God just seems like, okay, I understand Marcion. He was an ancient heretic. He said, you know what we need to do? We need to save God. The way we're going to save him is we're going to unhitch from the Old Testament. Let the old, bury that thing. Let's talk about Jesus. He's loving. He holds a little sheep. And he carries, he carries you like this. And he hugs you all day. This is who we need. <laughs> Let go of the Old Testament, cruel Old Testament God. The bloodthirsty God. The cosmic bully. Let him go. We want beautiful Jesus. How many times have you heard a sermon where God is made out to be the one standing on the corner of the busy street giving out free hugs? God loves you, man. <laughs> Begging just to be loved. I just want you to love me. Wishing he would be chosen. I just really want you to realize I want you. No, folks, God is God. He does not need us to recreate him into a deity that is more palatable to this modern generation. You don't have to make him more palatable. He's God. What are you going to do? He treated Adam and Eve the way he did. What are you going to do? He dealt with Aaron's sons the way he did. What are you going to do? He's God. Well, I don't think he's right. What are you going to do about that? I know you don't understand. That's why you think he's wrong. But then again, aren't you doing what Adam did? Elevating yourself as judge over God? By killing Uzzah, God made sure we know that Christ, foreshadowed by this Ark of the Covenant, came to save us on His terms, not on ours. He's God. That's what the gospel is. We're supposed to go into all the world, therefore go into all the world. What does therefore mean? Well, he said something before therefore. He says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am God. Now, therefore, go and tell the world. But you know what we do instead? We don't go, therefore, and tell the world that, hey, you have a king. Guess what? You have a king. His name is Jesus. Instead of doing that, we, we go into the world trying to sell Jesus. We make him palatable. You're going to just try him out. He's going to, no, listen, he's king. 
Now, I don't know what you want to do about it, but I would suggest, <laughs> I would suggest you serve him. We have a new king in town. He rose from the dead. All authority, both in heaven and earth, has been given to him. Now, all the nations of the world obey his commandments. I'm not gonna. Okay. I'm just telling you, you have a new king. <laughs> he ain't my president. <laughs> no, yeah. Guess what? <laughs> yep, I guess he's king. What are we going to do? Next. As we see Nadab and Abihu was the portrait of our coming Christ. We see um, Azza touched the ark when he wasn't supposed to, misrepresenting who God was, judging God for who he is, touching his glory, trying to help him. Now we see in this last example I want to bring you, God ordered that a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath, this guy was caught gathering sticks on the Sabbath, that this man be stoned to death. Isn't that crazy? It was the Sabbath. They found this man just gathering sticks to make a fire. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work. So they come to Moses. They say, hey, Moses, we caught this guy gathering sticks. What are we supposed to do with him? Moses prays and God says, kill him. Stone him to death. Could you do that? I don't know. I don't know. And so they stone this man to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And immediately, everybody in their hearts go, okay, now that's a little over the top. Unbelievable. That's a little too crazy. But it was on the Sabbath. So what I want to do is I want to introduce the Sabbath to you. There are, there are twofold purpose of the Old Testament Sabbath. The first is found in Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. It says, to remember God as creator. That's why there's a Sabbath. Remember, God created heavens and earth. First six days he worked, and the seventh day he rested from his work. That was the Sabbath. That Sabbath is commemorating or picture of honoring him as creator. Let's read it. Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day for the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor animals, nor any, foreign any foreigners residing in your towns. Verse 11, here it comes. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In other words, He created everything. But He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why? 
in remembrance of God, your creator. Number two, there's a second purpose to the Sabbath that was introduced later in Deuteronomy. Here God changes the purpose to the Sabbath. And this time around, they not to remember God as creator, they are now to remember God as redeemer, savior out of slavery. All right, Deuteronomy 5.12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son's daughter, nor your male <coughs> or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and your female servants may rest as you do. Verse 15, here it comes. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, remember you were slaves. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So we see, first, when God introduced the Sabbath, it was in order to remember Him as Creator. Then He changed the purpose for the Sabbath. He says, now, I'm going to keep the Sabbath, but this time I want you to do it in order to remember that I am not just Creator, now I am your Redeemer from slavery. Okay. So then the penalty for working on the Sabbath was severe. It was death penalty. Exodus 35, 2 and 3. For six days, work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Why would a loving God act so harshly towards a man who simply gathered sticks for fire on a Sabbath day? The reason for this seemingly harsh decision is because the Sabbath is in fact a picture of who? Remember? He says, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote of me. The Sabbath rest is a picture of the rest you have in Christ. Jesus is your Sabbath. In Him, you rest eternally. Rest from what? Rest from working. <laughs> rest from working to be right with God. Not rest from not going to the job tomorrow. No, no. Rest from having to be good enough to qualify before God. Jesus said, come unto me all you who labor. He wasn't a, he wasn't a socialist saying, hey, you don't have to go to work anymore. No, he said, come to me you who labor. To be right with God, you're doing as many of the laws as you can and you're failing and this is crushing you. Come to me, I'll give you rest. So, the Sabbath is in fact a ceremony and Jesus fulfills all Old Testament ceremonies. He became your Sabbath and you find your rest in Him. All right? There is absolutely no salvation for anyone who does not enter 
Christ. There is no rest for them. Anybody who adds their work to the Sabbath, watch this, watch this. Anybody who adds their work to the Sabbath will die. Because, again, you cannot add human effort to God's perfect grace. The moment you add human effort to God's grace, it is no longer grace. Because now you are sharing God's glory with Him. You cannot, you may not, because if you do, you will not live. So our conclusion here is that with, with a man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath, God condemns all who add their work to Christ. Christ is your Sabbath if you work in it. If you work in Christ, there's no salvation for you. The command is clear. Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep Christ's work separate. Keep Christ's perfect sacrifice, His perfect work on the cross, which is now completely finished. Keep it separate from your efforts. Separate it. Don't add to it. Because if you do, just like this man who added work to the Sabbath, must die, absolutely has to die. Otherwise, he would mar this portrait of who the Sabbath truly is, Christ, and a perfect work which you don't have to add to. The reformers <clears throat> came up with what's called the five solas. And the five solas, and I'll close with this, is this. By grace alone, not by your efforts added to it. Through faith alone, not your works. In Christ alone, not Christ plus you. According to Scripture alone, not according to your opinion or your terms on which God should save you. For the glory of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone, that is salvation. And it's throughout the Old Testament. Now, if you wondered why God responded to people the way He did when they misrepresented the coming Messiah, now, you know, if God treated them that way, how would God treat us if we alter Christ's office by taking from it or adding to it? And if we alter Christ's message by taking from it or adding from it? Folks, that's the difference between error and heresy. Error is you misinterpret a verse. Error is when, in fact, you're a premillennial when you're supposed to not be something. I don't know. This is error, you know, or you're a post-millennial when you're not supposed to be, all right, whatever. But it becomes error when you add or subtract from Christ's office. He is the only mediator. Or you add or subtract from Christ's message, the gospel, penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Amen. Did you get something out of the word today?